1: New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order, beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 161 of the
0: Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And I just want to say congratulations, Jen.
2: Oh, thank you, thank you.
0: I guess... I'll just say it, (laughs) on your 250,000th member,
2: which actually didn't even ask, which group was this? It's the big one, the regular delay, don't deny, intermittent fasting support. Just hit 250,000. We were supposed to start recording this podcast 45 minutes ago. (laughs) And we like to welcome milestone members, and a quarter of a million is quite a milestone if you would agree, we just hit 100,000 last June. Okay. So it hasn't even been a year. And we've gone from 100,000 to 250,000 members. But that's just in the regular delayed on denied group. I have two other groups that, you know, overall, we have well over 350,000 combined members, but a quarter of a million in one place. It's amazing.
0: And if CASE listeners are wondering what city has 250,000 members, Jen was like, find <laughs> a city in the U.S. with 250,000
2: members. And that would be St. Petersburg, Florida. We now have as many group members in the Delay Don't Deny Intermittent Fasting Support Group as people who live in St. Petersburg, Florida. We are a big city. It's crazy. It is. It really is. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I can remember when the group had like 1,500 people. And I was like, look how many people, it's so big.
0: (laughs) I would say I feel like mine's a lot, but ever since I've been like knowing you the whole time, my my group feels like perpetual baby group forever. We just hit (laughs) 4,000 members, which is funny though, because I remember like when I first was exposed to Facebook groups, I was like, oh, what if you had, you know, a group with thousands of members, which technically 4,000 is, but everything's in perspective.
2: My advanced group, the book support group, has 26,000 members. And I still think of that as my little group. Yeah. <laughs> my little 26,000 <laughs> member group. But, you know, I I share a little bit more of myself in that one, just because, you know,
0: it's still a lot of people. Oh, wait, can we tell listeners the story about the book that just
2: happened? Yeah, go ahead. You tell it. It was interesting. I showed it to my husband. He's like, that's cool. So Ariane Resnick, who developed the amazing
0: recipes for my book, What When Wine, she, actually, this is super random. Did I tell you she was actually the personal chef to Pink, the sinker? You've told me that, yeah. I just thought about that again because my dad is obsessed with Pink. <laughs> so I told him that yesterday. In any case, she has a chef friend, and I won't say who it is because I don't know. You know, the book is not out yet. But she has a chef friend who is writing a traditionally published book, and it's going to be an intermittent fasting cookbook, which I love the concept of, and They were asking me if I could do a blurb for the cover. She sent it to me to read and I was reading through it and she goes through all the different types of fasting. Then she came to this section. It was all about OMAD and it was all about Jen Stevens. (laughs) I was like,
2: oh my goodness. I love it. I would love to do a blurb for her, too. If you want to pass that along, let him know. She will be so excited. I will let her know. Yeah, I would love to do a blurb. That's really exciting. I will. I will tell her that.
0: Since she cited me in the book. It's funny. She <laughs> actually, before I started reading it, she sent me an email when she sent me the draft or the galley. Is it called a galley if it's electronic? Or is that only for print? I have no idea. Regardless, she sent me the, the manuscript. <laughs> she sent me the book. And in that email, she said, oh, by the way, I just saw that you, I don't know if I told you this. She said, I just saw that you posted something in a group that we're both members of. And I was like, oh, I was like, was that the One Meal a Day group? I was like, Cause that's my co-host group. <laughs> so it's kind of funny.
2: Yeah. Tell her I would be delighted to write a blurb. Perfect. I will let her know. Yay. That's exciting.
0: And then I wanted to say really quickly, I I did post... In your One Meal a Day group, which I still perpetually think that's your biggest group. I know your other one is. It is, yeah. I think because it was bigger at the beginning, right?
2: It was bigger, and we locked it down at some point, and here's why. It was a bear to moderate because people would just wander in, and they didn't know who I was. They didn't know Delay Don't Deny. They hadn't listened to our podcast, and they would wander in and then argue with us about stuff like one meal a day has to be 23-1. Like they would come in and be like, y'all are all stupid. It has to be 23-1. It has to be on one plate. You know, people were really, you know, like belligerent about it. And I'm like, you know, I don't care what people call it. We're not going to get crazy about that here. We're not going to come in here and start arguing. I mean, this was the first one meal a day group on Facebook in 2015. And our definition has served as well since 2015. And so, you know, either be in our group and like it or, In another group, and it doesn't matter to me what you call it. You know, we've talked about that before. It doesn't matter to me how people want to define it or what they want to call it, but we're not going to argue with you here. That's it. So we locked it down to the point that only people could join if they knew who I was, had read the book, listened to the podcast, or if they were invited by a friend who was already in the group. Because we found that if they had a friend that was already in the group, they are a lot more likely to not go crazy. (laughs) You know how people can be crazy in a place like Facebook, right? And the internet, yes. Yeah, and the internet. And so, you know, we had a lot of people who would join. And I almost closed that group down years ago because people would come and they were just so, you know, like internet people. And, you know, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to have a group where everyone's arguing all the time about stuff. That's why it hasn't grown very quickly because it's really locked down. Trolls. Well, you know, I love Facebook groups. They're amazing. And I love having a community, but we're not going to just sit around and argue all day.
0: You know, what's really interesting to that point, because like I said, the post I posted in that group was a link to a quiz that I made, which listeners, <laughs> I'm really proud of this little quiz. It's at melanieavalon.com slash if quiz, although it's down right now. That's why I was on the phone with GoDaddy Jen. But it'll be up by the time this comes out. What's interesting to what you were just saying is I posted it in your group. And what that quiz does is it basically asks you a lot of questions about your life to help you find an intermittent fasting approach. It recommends one. So it either recommends a meal approach. It's the three ways that I break it down in my book. So it either recommends a meal approach where you're, that's kind of, that's what Jen and I basically do, where you have like a window of a meal or one or some people do, you know, two meals in that meal approach. Then it has like a clock approach. So that's where like following the, the times on the clock. So I eat from two to six or I eat from, you know, this time. And then it has a window approach, which I know is like kind of confusing. But my version of window in this context is like saying that you you have a window of fasting or a window of eating. So the amount of time you fast or the amount of time you eat may change. But typically, you're always fasting like a minimum amount of time. And then people who do like ADF might be more window. But the reason I'm bringing it up is... I think it had, like, almost 700 comments. There wasn't any drama about
2: terminology at all. Right. See, that's the thing. We're very low drama. And it takes a lot of moderating to make that happen. (laughs) You know, people don't realize that. You know, we have 60 moderators in the groups. And... You know, we want to make sure that our group is a place where things are not confusing, where people are not arguing about semantics, where we're consistent. And we actually do follow, you know, the delay, don't deny intermittent fasting approach, which is not the same as, you know, the XYZ intermittent fasting approach that you may have read somewhere else. And so, you know, there are a lot of support groups out there now. And for ours, we we want them to be happy, cheerful places where we're not all arguing with people all day long. <laughs> You don't have to agree with everything I say, but you know, we're not going to have a group where everyone comes in and argues. That's the point. My little baby group, Paleo OMAD biohackers. <laughs> we just had our 4000th member.
0: There's no drama there.
2: Yeah, I love it. We have very little drama. It's wonderful. You know, we really just do have very little drama. I remember one one time somebody shared something. This was in the days way before post-approval. Post-approval really helps keeping down the drama. Do you have post-approval in your group? No, I don't need it yet. Okay. Yeah, I didn't need it yet for a long, long time. But I remember when I would be teaching school and you know, I'd be like in the middle of the day teaching and then my phone would start to blow up. I didn't have any moderators either. And someone had posted something wacky and thereby was freaking out and started messaging me. And I would have to be like, all right, children, I need to do this real quick. I mean, you know, (laughs) I'm retired. I can talk about that now. But, you know, now that we have post approval, we don't approve posts that are, you know, going to be super crazy. You know, we always answer them to people privately. Like you can decline a post and give people feedback Like you can answer it with a decline. Like if they say, for example, can I put, you know, cream in my coffee during the fast? We don't need to approve every one of those. Instead, we just decline with a note that says, no, we do not put cream in our coffee during the fast. It really helps keep the group moving along so that 250,000 people don't need to see that question. Behind the scenes of Facebook.
0: Yep. Yep.
2: Only people knew
0: that in podcasting.
2: It's true. We could tell stories about that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so for listeners, we will, we'll put links in the show notes to the groups, to that quiz, to all the things. And by the way, I do want to say I'm not accepting any new members in the advanced group until after the new book comes out because it's the advanced group. You know, you had to have read Delayed on Deny to join it. But now since it's the advanced group, we're making them more advanced. They have to have read Fast Feast Repeat to join. So we're not accepting any new members in the advanced group until after a fast feast repeat comes out June 16th. So don't go try to join that one. We will not let you in, but you can join the regular delay, don't deny group now. And then once fast feast repeat comes out, we'll open that back up to new members at that time.
0: Awesome, Exciting. Exciting things.
2: It really helps when everyone's on the same page. That's why we you know we we want you to read the book if you're gonna join, because then we're all talking about it the same way. And it just really, really helps because there's a lot of confusion out there.
0: This is very, very true. All right, shall we jump into our questions? Yes. All right, so the first question comes from Haley. The subject is gaining weight. Question mark, obsessive thoughts. Haley says, Hi Melanie and Jen. I love listening to your podcast and love the intermittent fasting lifestyle. I'm a 21-year-old college student and have been intermittent fasting since January 2019. I started eating a gluten, dairy-free diet also, and by January 2020, I went from 165 to 125 pounds, but still needed some body recomposition. I'm only 5'2 and have a lot of fat in my stomach and legs. In January of this year, I started trying to make even healthier choices with my food. I started working out a few times a week, so I ended up losing another 10 pounds to be around 115. I also started implementing a few extended fasts just to challenge myself, but was unknowingly not giving myself a proper refeed. In March... After moving home because of COVID-19, I started noticing that the number was going up on the scale. Now, mid-April 2020, I've gone back up to roughly 120 to 125 pounds, and I'm noticing that my clothes are not as loose as they once were. Since the middle of March, I've been trying to do ADF to kickstart my weight loss again, but I feel like I am beginning to have unhealthy, obsessive thoughts from this, and once I break my fast for my refeed, I am overeating not binging, but definitely overeating. My concern is not necessarily the scale, but that I can see a physical gain in my body. Going back to my 24 window makes me very nervous because if I am not losing weight with ADF, then how will I lose weight with what made me plateau? I'm really hoping you can help me out. It is beginning to become a very big stressor in my life. Thank you. All right, Haley, what are your thoughts, Jen?
2: You know, we're facing this in all the groups right now, weight gain, and this period of stressful time. People who have been at maintenance for a long time are suddenly finding that they're up five pounds. And it's not because, you know, intermittent fasting has stopped working or they're doing anything wrong or they're eating more. I mean, people may be eating more and moving a little less, but let's talk about the effects of stress. Even though, you know, you might be safe at home and and in your mind, you know that you're fine, your family's fine. This is still very stressful. I mean, earlier today, I went to the grocery store. Just going to the grocery store was stressful. I was like, am I getting too close to people? Do they think, oh, my God, I touched my face. I mean, where's the line? I've got to go in this door and not that door. Everything is weird right now. Everything is weird. And so we know that there is a link between stress and weight gain. And it's not even that you're eating more. You know, we've had the whole idea people think that, you know, we have increased cortisol when we're stressed and people assumed that that was just because, you know, cortisol stimulates appetite, we're all eating more. And actually, no. When we're chronically stressed, there's a study that shows that and this is an article that I've linked in my group, which is why I had it handy, just to let people know it's okay if this is happening to you right now. If your glucocorticoids are high, that's what happens when you're going through chronic stress, you actually can make new fat cells more quickly. It's like your body is like turbo fat storing. And it's not because of anything you're doing differently. Your body's like, oh, my God, this is terrible. We've got to start storing some fat just in case because something dramatic is going on. Your body doesn't know that you've got plenty of food. We're okay. It's just, you know, this weird time we're going through. So... Here's what I want people to do, not just Haley, but other people who are listening and probably this is is striking a nerve and they think they've just been, you know, like weak or something. No, this is biology. This is your body reacting to this chronic stress. I don't want you to fast harder or diet harder or ADF longer or fast forever Because that actually, if you're in a state of chronic stress, that's actually the worst thing that you can do is add more stress. And I also don't want you to stress about the stress. You know, I even find myself getting caught up in this. And so what you may need to do is take a step back. Nourish your body. Yeah, if you've been baking cinnamon rolls every day, then maybe stop doing that. But eat nourishing foods. Take care of yourself it might be time to, to figure out some ways to de-stress. You know, Melanie and I were talking while I was waiting to find my 250,000th member. We were talking about tapping. She just interviewed Nick Ortner, who wrote The Tapping Solution and did The Tapping Solution documentary, which I have now watched. And I'm in the middle of his book, and I'm starting The Tapping because I have had increased anxiety. Even though I'm safe at home, even though everything is, quote, fine, my body doesn't feel like it's fine. And so I've started doing the tapping because I'm fascinated with the science of it, but I can already feel that's helping me to relax a little bit. So for everybody out there, take a deep breath. Think about how you can nourish yourself, relax, and understand that you might have a little bit of weight gain if you feel like you're under all this stress. And as we start getting back to normal, that's when you can start you know, releasing that excess weight. Well, Haley, I would recommend going back to 24, which felt right to you. And eat mindfully within your 24 window. And don't stress about what your weight is doing right now. Like I said, we don't want to stress about stress. And I don't want you to fast harder. I want you to really just relax into this time because it is like something we've never been through before. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I'm so glad
0: you brought that aspect of it up. And for listeners, the interview with Nick Ortner is MelanieAvalon.com slash tapping. And the studies on tapping are honestly shocking.
2: One of the stories. They're shocking.
0: Yeah. One of the stories he says in the book. Have you read The Tapping Solution,
2: his book? Yeah, that's what I talked about. I've got that one. I'm halfway through it. So you are reading it. Yes, I've got another one, too, that's The Science of Tapping or something, and it's by PETA something or other. I can't think of her last name. She's done a lot of clinical trials, like like legit clinical trials. The results that they're getting... It's crazy. One of the most recent studies, they found that it instantly
0: upregulates... I don't remember how many. I feel like it was like 90 or something, but that could be wrong. But it was a, like a large number of genes that are tied to longevity, like in a single session.
2: She talks about a study in her book that they did, and I think it was her. It was either her or it was somebody. Somebody told this story anecdotally in in the book. It might have been in the introduction. Is it the cortisol story? Yes. Yeah, that's what I was about to tell. That's Nick's book. Okay. I couldn't remember because I'm reading two books at one time. That's my favorite story. (laughs) You know, once I get into something, I like look at it everywhere, and you're the same way I know. Jen will be like not interested at all, and then she gets interested, and it's like obsession.
0: (laughs) It's true. You have to like flip the switch. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that sounds weird. I'm not going to do that. Oh, my God, this is amazing. I have to, like, keep
0: throwing things
2: at Jen. And- <laughs> <laughs> but the story, let me let me paraphrase it, Melanie. A scientist was testing cortisol, right, to see, and it was before they were supposed to have a presentation about it, and they were going to present it at this conference, but the the lab was delayed, delayed, delayed with getting the results back, and then they didn't have it in time. But then finally, they checked with the lab and the lab's like, something's wrong with our equipment. We're having to recalibrate it because the numbers are so off. But they weren't. That's really how much better they'd gotten. It was like so
0: effectively reducing cortisol compared to the other setups. They thought that they were just doing something wrong. So they, they kept retesting it.
2: Yes, they, they were recalibrating their equipment because they thought something was wrong. I think it said they did it like three times or something. Yeah. It's crazy. It sounds nutty. I'm sitting here tapping, tapping, tapping. I'm like, okay, this looks nutty, but the science is
0: basically what it is, listeners who are not familiar. It's where you tap, like with your fingers, on specific points on your body, mostly on your face, some are on your chest, your head. But basically, it activates, kind of like how acupuncture activates certain meridians there's the whole network that this activates and it turns on your parasympathetic so your relaxation mode and so that alone will you know downregulate cortisol increase longevity hormones but the way it's used like a treatment modality for a lot of things like fears and issues and anxieties is the idea is that we have a lot of fears and ideas that are ingrained subconsciously in our like our our fear response so like if we're worried about something stressed about something we're chronically activating this you know, fight or flight response. So with tapping, you may think that you would do it and want to think like you think happy things while doing it. But actually what a lot of the tapping does is you actually focus on what you're scared of or what you're anxious about while tapping these points. And it retrains your brain because you're being exposed by thinking about your fear or whatever you're trying to tackle. You're thinking about that. And normally you would have a, a fear response, but by tapping, you're literally forcing your body into the opposite response. So it retrains your brain to not have a fear response to whatever you're worried or stressed about. So that's why not only in the moment is it incredibly powerful, but it can actually change your life beyond that. They use it to address you know phobias, fears, addictions, so many things. So it's really incredible. The stories are compelling. Yeah, one other point to your cortisol thing, you start talking about how it, you know, on a scientific level makes you gain weight. There's an irony to it because cortisol in the short term actually frees up fuel in your body for use. If you start an exercise session or something, you're going to have high cortisol that's going to release energy to you. So you think you would lose weight from cortisol, but actually what they've found is that long, like chronic cortisol, so when you're just constantly stressed, It actually affects a hormone called neuropeptide Y in your body, which is a potent regulator of fat storage. And being chronically stressed basically
2: makes your fat cells just want to store fat constantly. And like I said, you even grow new ones. It's not just that you're storing in the ones you have, your body's actually making new ones. I'll go more into this a little bit more, which I think it'll also really help with Haley's question,
0: but I'll I'll save that discussion for the next question. But So beyond the stress, like actual practical
2: implementation you said you recommend that she goes back to just daily if yeah because she said that the adf was making her feel more stressed and so that's the last thing you want to do is try to force yourself into a pattern that doesn't feel right
0: yeah so actually Haley, i think listen to the next question because i could talk about it now but i'm going to talk about it in the context of the next question i do want to say one thing though and i want to get your thoughts on this jen i think a lot of people we might have talked about this before as well I think a lot of people think that in order to reduce stress, that having something like intermittent fasting is, oh, that's a restriction, so that's going to be stressful. You know, that it's like now is the time that I need to not be fasting because I need to be intuitive and I need to not be stressed. But I think for a lot of people, having the bright line boundaries of intermittent fasting and then eating, you know, what you want nourishingly in the eating window, I personally think that that is a good route to go for a lot of people, especially.
2: 100%, yes. It takes away all those decisions that you have to make during the day. Is it time to eat? Is it time to eat? Should I eat? You know, what should I eat? And that's stressful. If you're like, nope, I'm fasting right now, you don't have to even think about that. And so you just have to think of how it makes you feel as to whether it's increasing your stress. You can tell from Haley's question that ADF is making her be more stressed. Just the way she worded it. I feel like a big
0: stress comes in when you feel like it's not working, so you don't know what to do. So you're trying all these different things when maybe it would be best, like Jen said, you know, just commit to a daily intermittent fasting window and go with that. I'm really excited. I'm going to have a really, really valuable resource for listeners. I talk all the time about that book, Never Bench Again, which is it's it's amazing listeners, it's, it's only like three hours, the audiobook. It's hysterical. And it applies to, I mean, it's about food and struggling with, it's not, you don't have to be like an actual binger. It's really if you're just struggling with following any food plan, but it applies to so many other things in your life. But I'm really excited because his approach really, really works well with intermittent fasting. And I'm interviewing him soon because he thinks it's really important to have a food plan, like with Bright Lines, with like Always and never's like the importance of having the plan, sticking to it, and then just ignoring that voice in your head that is trying to like convince you of other things. Or it's really freeing. I think the reason I'm saying this is I think a lot of people think being restrictive is just going to create more problems when it's not really being restrictive, it's having bright lines and boundaries. And it goes really well with intermittent fasting. And I think it can be a great stress reliever.
2: Yep, I agree. Absolutely. And you'll know if it's making you feel more stressed, you'll feel it like like Haley has. And if, if it makes you feel more relaxed, you'll know that too. Yep.
0: Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, literally every single day of my life. I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay. So friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy that includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show.
2: All right, so now we have a question from Debbie. And the subject is increased subcutaneous fat with fasting. Hello, you two. Thank you for all of your help and support through your podcasts and Facebook groups. My question is regarding fat specifically subcutaneous versus visceral, but I'll give some background first. I have been fasting for a few years now and fasting clean about 18 months. I rarely eat breakfast and typically do about 16 to 20 hours of daily fasting, but have found that ADF works well for me. That's alternate daily fasting. I am currently in my second month of ADF, and she said she's following a 4-3 pattern, which would be four up days, three down days. And this is, by the way, anyone who doesn't know what that means, it's all explained in the up and down day chapter of Delay, Don't Deny. In order to shed some fat as I'm participating in a fat loss challenge with my CrossFit gym, we have to do a DEXA scan before and after. I used to go to the 5.30 a.m. class at my gym, but during quarantine, I've adjusted my routine so that I work out in the evening on my fasting days and then the morning of my eating days so that I exercise twice in the fasted state. I am 5'6 and hovering around 140, 10 pounds down from early March when I started the challenge. I've upped my weight training gradually in the last eight years or so, so I have put on some muscle. When I lost all of my weight via Weight Watchers back in 2006, I was 130 pounds and in a size 8 pants. Now, at 140 pounds, I wear a 6 comfortably and last night squeezed into some stretchy 4s that I bought as some goal pants for late May when the challenge ends. Back to my question. One thing I've noticed while fasting in the last year or so is that I feel that my belly fat has increased or is jigglier somehow. I know why. Anyway, (laughs) sorry. I know I'm getting smaller based on the gene sizes going down, but would love to have the jiggle go away. Could it be that my visceral fat is decreasing and moving or turning into subcutaneous fat? Have you heard this from others and do you have any tips for how to help it diminish? I did find a study that discusses the two types of fat and fasting, but deciphering what the conclusion was is another thing maybe you two can help. And then she put a link to a study. And then she said, thank you a bunch and fast on Debbie. All right. So Debbie, I have to tell you,
0: you sent this question. So if listeners are curious, I read every single question that we get, and then I read it. And then I reply to our assistant and I say either black, purple, red, black means we're probably not going to answer on the podcast. Purple means we might and red means I would like to at some point. This is the first time I got one and I was just like red, 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 red <laughs> Sharon was like, oh my goodness, this question made me so excited. And thank you, Debbie, for drawing attention to this study. I got so excited. I read it every single word. I actually started a email conversation with <laughs> with James Clement, who wrote the switch, and David Sinclair, and we all have been discussing it. <laughs>
2: Oh, by the way, I actually cited this one in Fast Feast Repeat. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't realize it till just right this minute where it said that I just clicked on the study and and read the title of it just now. I actually discussed this exact study in Fast Feast Repeat. That is really exciting. I know. See, there's a lot of new stuff in Fast Feast Repeat, (laughs) y'all.
0: The study for listeners is fasting induces a subcutaneous to visceral fat switch mediated by micro RNA 1493p and suppression of PRDM16. Okay, shall I reveal what the study found, Jen? Yes. Okay, so this study was absolutely fascinating. So for listeners, to briefly answer your question Debbie, yes. <laughs> it is very possible that fat is Changing its form on your body. So the two main types of fat on the body are visceral fat, and that is the type of fat deeper in your body. It's around the organs. It's considered to be it's the unhealthy fat typically. Subcutaneous fat—that's the fat right underneath your skin. So that's the fat that you like on your thighs, for example. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the fat that you can pinch. It's the fat that you can see. It's actually. One of the things the study pointed out was that while visceral fat and being overweight and obesity are linked to disease and you know problems with lifespan, actually subcutaneous fat has no correlation to disease, and it might actually correlate to less risk of disease. So it's a good thing to have. So what's interesting is that there's, on top of those two types of fat, there's also two types of the actual fat cells in fat. Well, actually three, because now they have beige, but... (laughs) Ignore that. White and brown. So white fat is not so good. It's the type of fat that is there for like long-term fuel storage. Our body likes to store it, doesn't like to burn it. It's pretty inflammatory. It's harder to get rid of. Brown fat is actually a metabolically active fat. So it's a type of fat that actually burns fat and it's good for you. So if you have more brown fat, you're more likely to be leaner and have a higher metabolism. It's it's a really great thing. And there was actually a really fascinating quote in the study that I loved. And I thought this was so telling. Kind of reminds me of like how we say a calorie is a calorie, but a calorie is not a calorie. In the study, they said, and I will tell you like exactly what this means, but they said, despite sharing the ability to accumulate triglycerides, so despite the ability to accumulate fat cells, the physiological roles of white adipose tissue and brown adipose tissue are almost diametrically opposite. So basically it's saying that white fat and brown fat cells can both accumulate fat and make you gain weight, but on what they're doing in the body, it's almost a complete opposite effect. So why is all of this important? We obviously want to get rid of white fat. We would be served well to reduce our white fat, increase our brown fat, reduce our visceral fat, increase our subcutaneous fat if we're increasing fat. Here's where things get tricky. So there are two things that affect all of this, fasting and cold exposure. So when you're fasting, especially for a longer period of time, that actually preferentially burns visceral fat. So that helps you get rid of that bad fat that you want to get rid of, that white fat that's stored around your organs. But here's the caveat. Don't freak out when I tell you this because there is a, it's all going to be okay in the end, I promise. While fasting and while burning that white fat, the subcutaneous fat, so the fat right underneath your skin, so normally it has some of that good brown fat that we like, the cells in your subcutaneous fat actually start to switch over to white fat. They call it a whitening effect. So what this means is that because what your body is thinking while you're on a longer fast is it's thinking, oh, we're going through our, our visceral white fat stores. So you know what? we better We better change the fat on the rest of our body to also be a white fat so that we can use it as a backup storage. So this actually is not like the best situation because we don't want more white fat and we don't want our brown fat turning to white fat. On the flip side but it's going to be okay, I promise. On the flip side, cold exposure also can help you burn calories and lose weight and lose fat, but it actually does the exact opposite. It actually encourages brown fat and decreases white fat. So if you compare fasting to cold exposure, and now it's making so much sense why I'm so obsessed with cold exposure. So if you compare cold exposure to fasting, fasting actually increases white fat, which is not so good because obviously you're burning fat, but the potential of it, whereas cold exposure increases the good brown fat. Long fasting actually increases macrophages, which are inflammatory cells in your body by up to 30%. Cold exposure actually decreases those by about 35%. Fasting for too long actually down-regulates your mitochondria, whereas cold exposure actually upregulates your mitochondria. Fasting for too long leads to a 50% decrease in oxygen. Cold exposure actually leads to a two times more oxygen. So the craziness of all this is that if you have to choose between a longer fast and cold exposure, you probably want to choose cold exposure. But before people freak out and say everything that we've said about fasting is wrong, a few key points to this. These studies are done in rodents fasted 24 hours, which correlates, we've talked about this before, Jen, the idea that actually rodents can lose like, I think up to around 18% of their body weight within 24 hours, which obviously indicates it's the equivalent of a much longer fast for a human. So this is not daily IF that's creating these genetic changes. This is longer fast. And then secondly, there is a way that you can actually reverse all of these potential issues. If you pair cold exposure with fasting, it actually stops that whitening of your brown fat, which I found really fascinating. And then also feasting appropriately refeeding in an ADF situation also reverses the whitening. So the takeaway that I got from this was that too much fasting, if you're doing too much fasting without adequate refeeding, yes, you will be burning through your visceral white fat that you want to be getting rid of, but you'll actually be encouraging the rest of your fat cells in your body to And this this is why this goes back to Haley's question. It's potentially possible you'll be encouraging the rest of your fat cells in your body to be wider and be more like gung-ho to store weight, which I just find really, really fascinating. So that's why I think it's really, really important that... Yes, you can continue partaking in fasting to reduce your visceral fat, or get rid of that fat around your organs, but you want to make sure that you're not leading to more white fat overall in the rest of your body. So that's going to be, make sure that you're having adequate refeeding, make sure you're eating nourishingly in your eating window. Pairing it with cold exposure will really work as well. So it's really fascinating. And then two other really important takeaways from the study that I found were so important that also relate to Haley and Debbie's questions. The study was (laughs) very, very, it's very intense. Like when I read the title of it, a lot of it is looking at the actual genetic changes that create all of this. And a lot it went way over my head. But the the huge takeaway I got was that fasting and these practices create changes genetically in our fat cells. So people may think, oh, I'm not doing anything different. I'm not losing weight or oh I'm not doing anything different. I'm gaining weight. It makes so much sense that like you you could not be changing anything of what you're putting in your mouth or what you're fasting, but if genes are being switched one way or being switched another, that's gonna change how you're storing fat. So I think that potential is huge. And then one other thing that I just found was fascinating was it it talks all throughout the study about the potential of fasting versus cold exposure and how they affect the number of fat cells. I don't know now how we can say that fat cells can't ever go away because this talks about the number of fat cells changing. To Debbie's question, practically, and I think Jen probably has a good idea of what might be going on, from the, the takeaway of the study and the concept of with fasting, can the type of fat in your body change? Absolutely. You can lose visceral fat. And then if you gain back fat, it's quite likely, especially if you're doing a healthy intermittent fasting protocol, that you would gain it in a more healthy matter of subcutaneous fat. So now the fat that was hidden and inflammatory around your organs, now you actually can pinch it. It's closer to your skin. So that that can definitely happen. That can be a thing. Is that happening in this case? What are your thoughts, Jen?
2: I do not think that is why her belly is feeling jiggly. I don't think it's because she's gaining new subcutaneous fat because that's not what it said. It didn't say that you made new subcutaneous fat. It said that the subcutaneous fat switched. When I was losing weight, I found that the areas where I was losing weight got jigglier. Here's what she said. Debbie said, I feel that my belly fat has increased or is jigglier somehow. I know I'm getting smaller based on the gene sizes going down, but would love to have the jiggle go away. So that happened to me. I mean, I lost over 80 pounds. I've talked about that. But as I was losing weight, like think about it as being really compact, all packed together, stuffed full of fat, okay? Think about your belly stuffed full of fat. It's tight. It's a lot of fat there. Now your body's clearing it out, and you're losing fat, and it's not as tightly packed as it had been, so it's going to be jigglier, okay? So it's not that you're increasing the amount of belly fat and becoming jigglier. It's that you're decreasing the amount of fat and getting jigglier. That's why you're jigglier, and it will go away because you've noticed you have lost 10 pounds since early March when you started the challenge, and you have found that you are losing pant sizes. So even though it feels jigglier, your pants are not lying to you. You're getting smaller. You're not adding fat on your belly. It just feels different. It's jigglier. It's looser because you're losing fat there. So I, no, I would not say you are not developing new fat there. It's just jigglier because it's less packed together. I do think that's what's happening with Debbie, what Jin just said. Yeah, so
0: I think some of the takeaways to all of this is that through this whole conversation, Jen, we've been talking a lot about fat cells and, you know, what's happening and all of these things. But clearly, just what you put in your mouth at any one point. Is not the whole picture. There's a lot going on at the genetic level. There's a lot going on with hormones. There's a lot going on with stress. There's, there's just a lot going on. And yes, you might lose one type of fat. You might gain another type of fat, or it might not even be fat. It might be this fat cells breaking it down. It might be water. We just don't know. But what do we know? (laughs) We know that practicing a daily intermittent fasting pattern, regardless of what studies say about mechanisms or changes that might be happening, or even what the number on the scale says, we see the health benefits of maintaining this dietary pattern as a lifestyle. So I think that speaks pretty loudly. What would you say?
2: Yeah, I think that it also goes to show that whatever's happening in the body, we can't know exactly what's going on at any given moment. And so don't worry specifically about, oh my gosh, what's happening to my fat? You know, your body is doing what it does. Your body wants to tap into your fat stores and it's doing that and it'll happen and that's all you need to know. All right. So we have one last question. This comes from
0: Bridget. The subject is insulin and IF. And Bridget says, hi ladies. I am a type one diabetic from Australia. I've been thinking about doing IF for a while now. Do you know if the spike in insulin from our insulin injections will affect my fasting state? Will IF be pointless if I have to break my fast twice a day to treat my hypos? Thanks. I thought this was a really interesting question. It's funny, I saw the subject, insulin, and I was like, oh, we I know what this is. But actually, this was different. <laughs> so um, the question is basically, if you're a type 1 diabetic and
2: you're taking insulin, what is that doing to your fast, Jen? Well, you have to keep in mind, I'm going to talk about someone who's not type 1 diabetic. Those of us who are not type 1 diabetic, we all have levels of insulin in our bodies all the time. It's not like when we're fasting, we have zero insulin and then you know, when we eat or have a sweet taste, now suddenly we've got insulin. We've we've got a level of insulin. It's like our baseline insulin level all the time. We don't want that to be high all the time, okay? So when we're fasting, we want our fasting insulin level to be low so we can tap into our stored fat. We don't want it to be high. Really high chronic levels of insulin are linked to a lot of bad things. Now, when you're type one diabetic, your pancreas is not producing you know, insulin to meet your needs that you need to keep your blood sugar at a normal level. So you have to take exogenous insulin. You have to inject yourself with insulin. But you're not giving yourself so much insulin that it's like high, high, high levels of insulin, like people who you know have hypoinsulinemia that that have their pancreas is over-releasing insulin. So you have to treat your type 1 diabetes the way that your doctor wants you to treat it. If that means you're giving yourself an insulin injection because you need it to control your blood glucose, that's what you have to do. So the best thing I want you to do is to talk to your doctor and let them know that you are doing intermittent fasting. You know, in this day and age, especially since intermittent fasting has been in the New England Journal of Medicine, doctors know that intermittent fasting is out there and they know that it's a very healthy way to live, you know, if they've been following the literature, but you have to have a plan As far as how you want to measure or how you want to manage your blood glucose, you know, if your blood glucose drops too low, you're going to have to, you know, whatever, whatever your doctor's instructed you to bring that blood glucose back up, you might have to quote, break your fast. But that's what you have to do because you need to keep your blood glucose in those levels that are safe for your body. So, you know, we do know that people with type 1 diabetes do live an intermittent fasting lifestyle, but you need to do it with your doctor's guidance. And don't worry so much about, oh, no, I need to break the fast. I have to, you know, bring up my blood sugar. You have to. That's not, like, optional. Let me clarify something from Bridget's question. She's talking about two different things. She's talking about giving herself insulin, and she's talking about treating her lows. So those are, like, two opposite things. Like, if her blood glucose gets high... By eating, right? Right. So Or whatever, you know, taking orange juice or whatever she's been told to do to when she's hypoglycemic. So... You know, there's, there are two things she's asking about, you know, taking the insulin and having to break her fast if she, her blood sugar's low. Those are two separate things. So sometimes she's going to have to give herself insulin when she needs it if her blood glucose is too high. But keeping in mind that that's still not going to be the same level of insulin that someone who's, you know, has got chronic high levels of insulin is dealing with. And also, if she's got a blood sugar crash, she has to do it. So sometimes she's going to be injecting insulin. Sometimes she's going to have to eat something to bring up her blood glucose. But you should not think about that as, oh, gosh, I'm breaking the fast. You should think of it as this is medically necessary.
0: Exactly. And I think one of the things that's really important, Bridget, is you might find that you will start requiring less insulin, for example. So it's going to be really, really important to monitor it with a doctor because you, you might find that your dosage is actually going to
2: change. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know, for example, that the book Mastering Diabetes, which I'm so excited I'm interviewing the authors soon on my other podcast, but they actually manage type one diabetes through a very, very low fat, high carb diet, but they're actually big proponents of fasting as well, which is one reason I'm really, really excited to interview them. But they have a whole section on this about when you are doing a dietary approach, you know, which might include fasting. And if you're a type one diabetic and, you know, the effects on your insulin usage with your doctor. And obviously like what Jen just said, this is not a situation where you're going to think about, Oh, am I breaking my fast? Like, that is not that is not the thing to focus on. You need to be doing your insulin injections and monitoring your insulin to stay healthy, but then through this process as you monitor you might find that your dosage might might change in a favorable way. So
2: Exactly. You got to do what you got to do without any thought to oh gosh, I'm breaking the fast. You have to keep your blood sugar at a safe level.
0: Exactly. All right. Well, This has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya Partners Show and if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can also follow us on Instagram. I still love our Instagram. It's so great. Jen do you ever look at it every now and then I'm not very active on Instagram sadly it's wonderful it's really inspiring and really funny I really love it so that's at IF podcast and you can follow us on Twitter we are the IF pod all right anything from you Jen before we go
2: nope I think that's it very interesting discussion today
0: I know whirlwind of topics and I look forward to talking to you next week all right I'll talk to you then bye-bye bye Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. The music was
1: composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.